Thank you all for checking out this week's episode. Once again, I'm John. If you like what you heard and saw today, subscribe to our YouTube channel, find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and check out our brand new merch store with hats, coffee mugs, t-shirts, other cool stuff coming down the pipeline. Again, thank you all for support. Be safe and see you next week. How's it going, everyone? John here, the host of Spear Talk, and today we have the incredible Captain Captain Dale Dye uh, on the show today, uh, Marine Corps veteran, uh, actor, technical advisor, writer, speaker. Uh, if you have the chance, check out some of the TED Talks uh, with uh, Captain Dale. Amazing. Um, sir, it's great to have you on here today. Well, thank you, John. It's good to be with you. <clears throat> and uh, before we kind of jump into your career, I, I want to say growing up and even now with the movies and stuff and watching television, it's always f interesting for me when I see a familiar face. And when it comes to movies and television shows, and I grew up watching all the Seagal movies, and you're always under siege, and the Band of Brothers stuff, and all these movies. And I, I never, I really, I was always like, man, he must be really good at wearing a uniform. Like he knows how to salute, he knows how to play that character <laughs> enough. And it's always blown away. And maybe this can kind of lead into what how you started Warriors Inc. Um, is that the need to portray certain military characters? man or woman in a way that is that gives a proper recognition to the actual craft of what these men and women actually do for their careers yeah well that's you've you've hit the the heart of the issue john i mean i uh, i always felt um and i you know i grew up watching war movies and had uh, i think i'd seen every one there was at some point in time and the common denominator was so many of them just pissed me off I mean, I'm, I was like any other veteran in the audience. You know, I'd see these guys looking like a bag of rocks, you know, and, and a beret on their head that looks like a pizza plate. And, and, and that started my interest in this. I said, you know, somebody's got to be able to correct that. You see in the credits, you see these guys listed as military advisors. Where are they? Are they asleep in a trailer somewhere? Come on. You know, and, and then I got to thinking more about it. Um, you know, I was at odds. I'd retired after Beirut in 82, 83. And, and I got to thinking more about it. You know, I said, I, it's not just the physical stuff that upsets me. Um, any veteran who's ever worn the uniform or carried the gear or handled a weapon, he sees those mistakes and it turns him off to the story right away. But I thought there was more to it, John. I thought what, what's missing here is an understanding on the part of civilians. And you've got to remember that us veterans are a really small percentage of the population. Right. What's, what's missing on the part of, of uh, most people who haven't been where we've been is an understanding of how we think, how we feel, how we react, what's in our mind, what's in our hearts, what's in our guts, because that's a very special thing. And unless you've been there, Unless you've made those relationships and understand that dark humor that we that we share, and unless you've done that, it seems odd to you. It seems uh, these guys are weird. Well, yeah, we are weird in a in a certain way. But I thought how how great it would be if I could find a way to somehow get the actors and the directors and the writers um, to understand that and to share it in the work that they did. And then maybe I thought um, 
we would get in the popular media, which is crucial these days, uh, an understanding to shine some long overdue light and much deserved light on who we are, what we are, how we think, how we act, and why we think that way and why we act that way. So that was that was the impetus behind my forming of Warriors Incorporated. Now, you have to understand, as I'm sure you do, um, when I came to Hollywood 30 odd years ago and, and said, hey, listen, I got this great idea. I'm gonna fix everything. You guys are screwed up like Hogan's goat and I'm gonna unscrew you and here's how I'm gonna do it. And by the way, you have to pay me money to do this. Well, I got the typical Hollywood reaction, which is kid, We've been doing military movies for a decade and we've done real well, thanks. We've made a lot of money and you wanna come in and tell us there's a better way to build this mousetrap. And I said, yeah, as a matter of fact, I do. Well, I didn't, I didn't meet much success. And I was frankly, after about a year in LA, I was about to give it up. I said, you know, I've, I've bitten off more than I can chew here. But I, I just knew I was right. I knew there was a way to improve this thing. And frankly, the method was what you and I went through as, as young recruits. I mean, you immerse that. You First of all, you PT the crap out of them until they become a blank slate. And then you begin to write the knowledge that you need on that blank slate. It's that simple. But no one had done it. And, and uh, or if they had done it, they had failed to reach the depths that I wanted to go. And so uh, I was about to give it up um, as, uh, you know, another one of Captain Dye's brilliant ideas that went swirling down the crapper. And uh, lo and behold, I ran, I had learned to read the trade papers, you know, daily variety and that sort of thing. And um, I saw a notice in daily variety, it was as a matter of fact, uh, just a little blurb that said a heretofore relatively unknown writer-director by the name of Oliver Stone was going to do a Vietnam War movie based on his own experience as a combat infantryman in Vietnam. And I said, well, there it is. I mean, if anybody's going to understand this and anybody's going to believe this, I got to get to this guy. So um, through some contacts and, and some... Uh, some misbehavior and bribes and various other things that I can't really talk about right now because the statute of limitations may not have run out. Um, I managed to get five minutes with uh, Oliver Stone in, uh, in Hollywood. And I, I simply pitched it. I pitched it like you would a, a block of military instruction. I said, listen up the following attempts. Here's why war movies are screwed up. You know it because you've been there. And if you're gonna do this thing right for us Vietnam guys, uh, you've got to do it the right way. You, these people have to become us as we were at 19, carrying a ruck and, and a 16 and, and that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, I looked at him and, and he, I wasn't sure really uh, if this guy was buying it or what, but he was. And uh, the upshot is that he said, okay, uh, I'm gonna give you a shot. I'm gonna give you the actors and I'm gonna give you three weeks and you have to take them into the jungles of the Philippines and make them live as we lived. And when you bring them down after that three weeks, they'd better be you and me when we were 19 or you're fired. And I said, well, that's mission type orders. I think I got it. Uh, and he gave me 33 actors, including uh, some who were extremely well-known today, but, but weren't then. Uh, Tom Berenger, Willem Dafoe, uh, Forrest Whitaker, Johnny Depp, 
and so on. And I, I took them into the, into the mountains of the Philippines, jungle mountains, no prep, no nothing. They had e-tools and they dug their own hole and they lived in that hole. And, uh, uh, you know, I just, I wore them out. And as soon as I got them worn out, you know, they, two hours of sleep a night was a, was a good solid night for them because I kept them up all night on night defensive positions, OPs, LPs, and hit them with my guys. My staff would come in and raise hell with them. We would stage night ambushes, day ambushes. Uh, and they were just absolutely knackered, which is exactly what we were uh, patrolling the jungles in Vietnam, same latitude as the Philippines. And so um, after about that, after that three weeks, I brought them down out of the mountains. And uh, they were indeed who Oliver and I were when we were kids in Vietnam. And, and what had occurred, and this is where I began to refine the, the Warriors Inc. Captain Dive method was that uh, I was really after not only their bodies, I had their bodies, they weren't going anywhere and they were gonna react exactly the way I wanted them to react. But I was after their minds and their hearts. And so much of what they underwent, they had to rely on each other. The sun did not rise and set on their posteriors. It was about the mission first, the welfare of the unit first, and then the well, uh, second, and then the welfare of the individual. And, and that's our life, that's how we live. But I, they needed to have a physical, practical understanding of that. So they got that. Um, and I think that um, what happened was uh, every evening before chow, and they ate twice a day or once a day if they pissed me off that day, um, the, the deal was that I would hold what was called a stand down. And it has now become uh, notorious and famous in the cabinet dive method. And it was simply this. Um, this is a period um, where uh, we're standing down from training. Uh, you can talk to me now as an individual, man to man, and you can ask me any question that's on your mind. And I will not quit talking to you until I've got you to understand that. And it doesn't make any difference how detailed it is. You know, a guy wants to know, well, how does it feel to be hit with morphine if you're wounded? Okay go after that question until he fully understands it. And when he does, he's got a grasp of that situation that he can bring to the screen. And there were all sorts of questions about these things. I mean, how do you, how do you take a dump in the field? Well, you, <laughs> I had to demonstrate and explain to them, you know. Uh, but all of those things added up to their understanding, their immersion of this thing. And the neat thing was because we had trained them so well when they got to telling the story, when they got to um, portraying their characters, they used every bit of that, even in just moments when they were only in background and that sort of thing. You'd see them punching the bore of a 16, you'd see them break it down and open it up, pull a bolt and a bolt carrier group. And, and you'd see that they knew what they were doing. And that in large measure, I think, that and a, a really great story and some really great performances was what, really made Platoon, which is the film we were working on, uh, such a, a dynamic hit. And we brought that little $5 million film home and lo and behold, it won four Academy Awards, mm -hmm. best picture and uh, best director for Oliver. And uh, the upshot was that uh, at, at those Academy Awards that I attended um, in full dress uniform, by the way, uh, 
Oliver Stone was uh, kind enough to have me stand and be recognized as the guy who did so much to make the film what it was. And as they say, nothing succeeds like success in Hollywood. So uh, at that point, all of those people who were telling me I was nuts were calling me and saying, hey, we got this war picture we want you to work on. And, and now it's, uh, it's, I think, 51 movies and TV projects later. Um, you know, it's kind of it's kind of the method, the, the way to go. So that's a long a dancing around the maple. No, it's, it's awesome. It's like to your point, I remember growing up with my grandparents and parents and watching everything from White Christmas to Kelly's Heroes to sure. all these war movies, learning about if it wasn't from a history book, I was watching John Wayne on the Iwo Jima <laughs> or Battle of the Bulge. And as I got older, platoon for me, and then obviously casualties of war at that era when I was probably old enough to understand kind of that. But when I first see those movies, I noticed a total shift in the fact that it, it felt like for me in a visceral sense, all my senses, this is a, these people, I don't even know, I blurred the line between acting and what's, what war really is. Because yeah. you read it from a history book and obviously uh, you understand like what happened, all these combat wars and stuff like that. But when you see it, Everything from the way they carried the shifted their weight carrying ruck marches or their, their ammunitions or how they talked after a certain march or something, it just it seemed like there was a difference. It's kind of cool to actually hear from you that you were part of the, the, that change in Hollywood where let's make this as believable as possible. You screaming at someone in a classroom, hey, pay attention, is going to sound and come off a lot differently if you've already marched five miles through the swamp. And it's like, I love that little nuances you added to these movies and stuff like that. Well, it look, it, to me, that's an Academy Award right there from a fellow right. veteran who says, look, you did it. I, I think one of the one of the nicest things that's ever been said about me, and, <laughs> and, and there are just a few, but one of the nicest things that ever been said about me was one reporter in Hollywood said uh, he, he did a story on me and he, he led it with let me introduce you to the man who changed the way Hollywood made war movies. And I think, you know, if there's a legacy out there, John, if, if there's, if there's something I could say, well, I'm, I'm really proud of that one, as well as some of the great films that I've helped uh, make, I, I think that's it. I think I did show Hollywood that um, American audiences or worldwide audiences for that matter, uh, deserve a real, a look at the real thing. They deserve performances by guys who at least have a, a, a more than superficial understanding of what the real thing is. And by doing that, um, if that's true, and, and I guess it maybe is, uh, if, it's, if it's true, then, um, then I've, I've done something for my fellow veterans uh, that, that I'm real proud of. Is there ever a time in the film of these movies, whether it's either mental or physical, where you have a reaction to a scene or a specific action that happens where it's like it gives you a flashback, maybe not even PTSD, to an incident where you were in Vietnam or something where you saw a loss of life? Or, I mean, like, is there anything that where it's almost like it's too much for you? Or is that part of your job where it's like not everyone has the honor or distinct a privilege to defend their country in, in a military sense, maybe in another way, or maybe there's some people that don't understand the war, but for someone like you to jump in there and kind of create that same reaction to someone like me to watch and be like, man, Vietnam would scare the hell out of me. 
do you get those same reactions to certain stuff in movies or TV shows? I, I do, John. Yeah, uh, especially early on. Uh, there would be scenes that we'd be involved in that I would help stage, and they were so close uh, to really tough stuff that I had been through, like in the Tet Offensive of 1968 in Boy City and, and that sort of thing. Yeah, and, and they would really jerk me around for a while. Um, and, and I guess I was, I, I was harboring some post-traumatic stuff that I didn't really understand and had frankly just ignored because I'm a tough guy. Um, but when I finally realized it, and it came about, I guess, around the time of casualties of war and that sort of thing, when I was really getting into this and doing more and more of it and, and sort of refining and developing my method of, of teaching actors and staging combat. Um, it occurred to me, these painful things are going to happen to me um, because I'm essentially recreating part of my own history, my right. own legacy. Uh, and, and I had two choices there, John. Um, give it up, modify it just to protect my psyche. Uh, or say, you know what? Uh, your duty isn't done. And, and you need to deal with this. And the more you deal with it, the more you, you experience um, getting it out of your guts. And it's one of the things I've always uh, talked to young men and women who come home from war. Uh, look, there's a lot in the back of your mind and especially in your guts and in your heart um, that's gonna bother you for a long time. Now you got two ways of dealing with that. Uh, you can hide it. And you can be a hard ass and you can just say, oh, I don't, I don't want to deal with it. Or, and this is what I recommend, find a way to uh, get it out of you. Find a way to, to talk about it, write about it, think about it in some way that gets that, that poison in your guts and in your heart out. Get it out. Uh, find somebody, you know, it could be as simple as you talking to me face to face over a beer. And I say, John, you know, I'm, this crap has been bothering me about this, that, and the other sort of thing. And I keep having visions of this and visions of that. And it gets worse when I try to teach it to other people. You don't have to say a damn word except sit there with understanding in your eyes because you've seen it. Right. And lo and behold, I've, I've coughed some of that out. Some of that is gone. Um, you know, it used to be uh, years ago, uh, it was all about going down to the Legion post or the VFW post. Well, that's kind of fallen out of favor uh, with, the, with the generation uh, that spent 14 years in, in Afghanistan and Iraq before that. And, uh, but it's still a really, really good way to handle this stuff. I mean, I, I tell people, look, write. You know, you may not be able to put two coherent words together in an English sentence, but it's not for anybody else. It's for you. Write that crap down, you know, and and by doing it, you exercise some demons by doing that. Uh, talk about it. Go on podcasts and say, look, um, I'm no great shakes at speaking here, but I want to tell you about X, Y or Z. And lo and behold, you find out that if you face that devil, that devil is defeated. And that's probably a whole hell of a lot more than you wanted to know. But that's what I believe. You've uh, I've watched other interviews where you've done stuff before where you talk about uh, you weren't good at school with the math and sciences, but English and writing was your thing. And obviously, yeah. as you get in the military, uh, as a combat correspondent, 
why, what was it about writing in a sense that kind of you gravitated towards as opposed to say the math or sciences? Like what was it specifically and how unique was it for you to have people in the military time be like, you know what, you'd make a really good correspondent? I, I think it was, I think it was um, my, my facility as an observer. Um, look, I am a, I am a kind of a, a very penetrating observer of things. You can talk to me and I'll look at your BDS eyeballs and pretty well I know what you're saying to me, even if you're not articulating it. Right. Uh, and I've always had that skill. Uh, couple that with the fact that I'm, I'm of an Irish heritage and, and I'm that guy that, you know, the Irish storyteller. And I'm that guy when we're around a fire, we're heating rations or heating coffee or something. And I'm that guy that can tell you a shaggy dog story and keep you interested for 45 minutes, you know, and, and there's no point to it. I'm just talking and entertaining. I've always been that guy. Um, and I think, I think that sort of facilitated things. And the business of, of observing uh, and participating in combat, uh, the interesting thing about that in extremis, behavior of human beings in extremis. Uh, the interesting thing about that is you see the full gamut of human behavior and human emotions, everything from the very absolute best to the absolute worst, and you see it all. And I think I, think I found that fascinating. I said, Jesus, you know, I'm, I'm part of a, of, a, of a race of human beings, uh, that's privileged to to be tested in the metal. And then if I'm smart to observe some of those things and to utilize them both personally and professionally. When it comes to you know, the Warriors Inc. stuff, when it comes to military tactics, obviously the battles, locations and stuff have changed, but the fundamental of war and combat is pretty, I would assume, pretty stayed the same. Obviously technology changes. So when you work on a film, it's my favorite film of all time, Last Mohicans. Yes. Obviously, you weren't in that war. You weren't <laughs> in that time. If you were, you look amazing. People say I was, but yeah. So, okay. so when you work on something like that, how much research goes into before you even step foot there where it's like, okay, I understand combat, but these are the firearms they had. These are the tactics. This is the location and stuff like that. Well, absolutely tons of it, John. And that's the reason that most people who try to copy me and sort of get into this business <laughs> fail so miserably because they may be very high speed, low drag, but they don't understand that there's a whole ton of research that has to be done. If you're gonna do the 25th century like Starship Troopers, or you're gonna do ancient Greece like Alexander or somewhere in the middle, you're in 1757, the uh, French and Indian Wars in last of the Mohicans, you've got to know that stuff. Now, my, my theory has always been, and I think you kind of alluded to this, that the spirit of a warrior is the same in ancient Greece in the middle of a 256 man Greek phalanx as it was with a kid you know, in the Hindu Kush uh, in, in 2019. I think the spirit of the warrior is the same. And if I start from there and do my research, things seem to make sense to me. They, they seem to say, ah, I know why he did that. I know why they did that this way because they had the same spirit that I had when I was in Vietnam or Beirut, Lebanon or Central America or wherever I was involved. And if you start there as your, your baseline, your understanding, then so much of what you're researching, that ton of research, which you absolutely have to do, uh, 
and I mean detailed research. I don't mean reading about, you know, the Galgamela campaign with Alexander <laughs> the Great. I mean, what, did, did they wear socks? Um, how, did, how did the bow differ um, if it was a U-bow as opposed to a bone? Uh, all of those detailed things. You've got to absorb those and then you've got to teach those because you're, you're moving to the spirit of the warrior. The implements change, the tactics change, the weapons change, but the spirit of the warrior doesn't. Now, that's to say, in direct answer to your question, instead of dancing around the maypole here, you got to do a ton of research and you have to understand that research. It doesn't help you when you have someone like a Daniel Day-Lewis or a Todd Berenger or a Colin Farrell or a Casper Van Dien. I mean, whatever character you've kind of worked with, that they buy into what you're trying to teach them and show them. Because ultimately, you're going to make these people look really, really good and believable, depending on the characters they portray, correct? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's the difference between a good actor and a guy who's just in it to make some money and become famous. A really good actor wants to be an effective storyteller. And those names you mentioned are, are really good actors because they want to be storytellers. And they will do anything that will assist them in, the, in increasing the effectiveness of how they tell that story. I mean, people, people say to me all the time, well, you know, you're beating the snot out of these guys and making their life miserable. And they're not in hotels and their cell phones and their agents. <laughs> And, and don't they ever walk away? The answer is no, they don't. And the reason is not only do I hold them captive and there's no place for them to go, but uh, that's practical terms. But in, in a more uh, philosophical, psychological term, they want this knowledge. They want it. They want those insights. And if you can give them the insights and then, and then, shape that insight in a context that they can use in their performance you got them they'll do anything for you yeah i just and it's so cool too because every time i watch last of he kids i picture i, I picture if if standard day lewis wasn't this trade reversed or how, whatever you did for the movie in terms of making this realistic that movie really isn't successful outside the music and some of the cinematography it's what he was super believable in a character that outside of that role looks nothing like that part. And it's, I find it really cool that these actors do take what you say and listen. And it just, it'd be so easy to just show up and be like, you know what, where's my paycheck? I'll throw the wig on, I'll make sure the epaulets are ironed or whatever it is. And here I go. But again, for you to have that ability for the, the trust there is Trust and the idea of leadership, because they do not only you've actually lived this life with some of these characters and you put you put your life on the line with Purple Hearts and you've lived these tales. But it, for, so when you look back, is this a more of a, a look at, hey, this guy, he's a leader. And if he's going to lead from the front, do this stuff with us, like we got to do the best we can ourselves. Yeah, well, that's exactly what it is. Uh, and Daniel uh, shadowed me. Uh, awesome. when I was commanding troops and when I was teaching and you could even see him pick up certain gestures that I, I had to warn him about that. I said, listen, some of the stuff I do uh, wouldn't have been done in 1757. So modify it. But he was there all the time and he was watching me intently teach, watching me intently work with people in the, in, listen, I stood in front of more British firing lines. <laughs> I have t-shirts that are just 
burned with powder burns, you know, because the guys would, I had to get out front to see exactly how that looked uh, from the front. And of course they would be firing full charges from brown vests and that sort of, and I'd catch that. And occasionally a ramrod would come by when the, from the idiot who forgot to replace the, the ramrod. But, but, uh, but Daniel watched all of that. And he was so interested in how I could merely look at somebody and point or point in this direction. And he'd say, and they, they just, they know, they, they just get it. They just go. And I said, yes, it's called leadership, Daniel. And leadership is built, built on respect. Leadership is, spelt, is built on what knowledge you are imparting. And to be a good leader is a lot like being a good teacher. Uh, look, you remember, I know you do, don't lie to me. All of the instructors that you really liked in school, what little schooling you probably had, all of those were the, the ones you remembered and the ones you picked up stuff from and the ones you emulated were the ones who entertained you. Right. They didn't bore you silly. And that drives back to that being part of being a leader is being a teacher and an entertainer. You've got to make what you're trying to impart, the instruction that you're trying to give, you have to make that interesting and you have to put it in context at all times. The reason I'm teaching you this is because you're going to X, Y, or Z. And you are going to need A, B, and C while you do that. And if, if you can get to that point without boring them to tears, you have become a teacher and by extension, a leader. When it comes to the idea of leadership for yourself, obviously there's a great TED talk out there. If anyone obviously going to listen to this, I suggest you check it out with yourself on it. But you talk about leadership. I guess my question for you, after the last couple of years, especially through the pandemic and stuff. And as you get older, have you felt your, has your ideas of what you think leadership is, has changed at all? Has you gotten better or is old thoughts you've had maybe about leadership kind of changed differently? Well, look, I, I don't think leadership ever changes, especially uh, military leadership. Um, it, it is an inherent quality and you have it or you don't. Now it can be built, it can be learned, um, but there's a certain spark in you that makes you um, a person who easily does that sort of thing. That's leadership. And it's exemplified nowhere better in my experience than in the military um, because lives are on the line. Um, right. Now, has, has leadership changed? Yeah, I suppose it has, in particular um, with the inclusion of females now. Um, and females becoming leaders and that sort of thing. Uh, the all, all male old boys club in which you could do certain things in a leadership capacity you can't do anymore, or you shouldn't do anymore. You can, um, but you're, you're cutting your effectiveness off if you try to do that. So yes, more, more the environment in which leadership has to be practiced has changed, but the quality of leadership, uh, the methodology that, that makes it good those principles of leadership um, that I talked about in, uh, in the TED talk, for instance, those remain the same. Um, it, it is threatened at this point um, by, I think, some incursion. Um, there, there used to be, let's see if I can put this right. There used to be a distinct 
difference between leadership as practiced in the military and leadership management, if you right. will, uh, that was practiced in industry and, and manufacturing and that sort of thing. Uh, that has gotten, um, it's, it's, it's slimmed down now. Uh, the difference in military leadership and effective corporate management has become sort of enmeshed and intermingled. And that, that's a bad thing. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not a fan of it. I don't like it. Um, I think it's a, a disservice. But we have to remember um, that we, uh, we Americans at least, uh, are, a, are a military that springs from and is designed to serve um, the population that we are sworn to defend. So it's a, it's a very difficult time right now uh, for military leaders. I, I, I often feel kind of bad for the, the good solid leaders who are just trying to rock and roll, just trying to teach, just trying to motivate. And, and they get clobbered with you know, the PC Nazis yes. and everybody else coming down. And, and they're, they're pulling the rug out from underneath these wonderful leaders, young corporals and young sergeants. And they can't do what they inherently feel and know they should do because they're leaders. They can't do it at the uh, at the risk of their career, um, or at the risk of some sort of silly disciplinary action. And I and I don't know, John, whether that's going to solve itself or not. I really hope it does. I thought when we first got involved in the wars in the Middle East, and I think early on it did. Uh, I thought, well, this this will square it away. The civilians go sit down and, and let us do what we need to do and lead to what we want to. But the longer it lasted, you know, the more that creep, that encroachment, you know, that mission creep between um, what's how civilians do things and how the military feels it should do things. It got narrowed. And I think we had some cowardly leaders uh, at very senior levels. And I use that word advisedly who refused to stand up and say, hey, get out of my business. I have my orders and my orders come from a duly elected Congress or from a commander in chief. Uh, I know what is required and I know how to do it. Thank you, sit down over there, I'll be back when it's done. Unfortunately, we just, we, we fell into a trap where we couldn't do that. You well, said just, we weren't gonna get political, but there you go. No, it's like, one of the things too, where it's like from an outsider looking in now, it's obviously politics have always been involved in war because you just can't go into war just because you sure. feel like it. Sure. But the war it, it got to the, for me it's always felt like i love hearing the troops the veterans the, the people that are actually out there but the brass now i i feel like are they in it for the next fox news or cnn interview or the photo ops or this kind of woke agenda and like here i am getting political but i'm just like it just infuriates me because there's so many good men and women that have served this country and want to serve or are serving right now it's like let them do their jobs because at the sure. end of the day they are here to serve us and allow us to do a podcast sure why would to, why so, would why would we subject those people right to these 30 second soundbite and and yes. leave them alone you know let them let them do what they want to do and and that i think john um although i'm a, a huge fan of of social media to begin with, uh, because right. I think it's another form of communication and right. any form of communication is good. Um, but, but it's become too much of a driver. 
Um, it's become too much of a motivator. I, I shouldn't be leading troops just to look good for Fox News. Right. Uh, and, and if I am, I'm doing the wrong thing. So anyway, that, that's how I feel. No, it's growing up, I, my sisters and I would always not laugh, but like my dad, we'd all be out there during like Memorial Day parades or Fourth of July parades or different stuff. My mom is always, since I've got older, walked up to any veteran because she could see a hat or you could tell, thank you for your service. And we'd always sit back and go, Bob, you're embarrassing us. Like, what are you doing? Like, this guy doesn't want to be bothered. Or You were rotten like, kids. Right, for sure. And <laughs> so as I've got older, it's become so awesome when I'm seeing my mom do this. And as I've got older, I'll be at a, a concert or whatever or somewhere out there with someone. I'll see a, a hat, whether whatever branch it is. Be like, hey, man, thank you for your service. Or buy that veteran a dinner or a coffee or little things like that. And I'm just like, where have we gotten to a society where – we can't we should be doing that and this is the same thing for a nurse or doctor or law enforcement people that serve yeah. others it's like this this is a, you don't have to buy a dinner you don't have to buy even a coffee say thank you and it's yeah. why it's, can't we look, the doctors lawyers soldiers i mean that's a calling not a job right now we've turned it into a job you know and and i'm interested to hear what you said about uh thank you for your service you know i i used to I was trying to be glib and people would say that all the time to me. And I'd say, you know, you're welcome because you're worth it. And then I thought, boy, are you being a butthole? I mean, you just <laughs> don't, don't flip them off like that, you know? And um, so what, what I tend to say now, um, or I, I try to teach people to say is, look, just go up and say, you know, I know we wouldn't be here without you and walk away. That's better than thank you for your service. Right. Because that reaches to us as soldiers. It says, you know why I did it. Right. That's, yeah, that's yeah, the key. You know, the reason why I have the freedoms I do is that little head nod. No, it's mostly like two words. Like I wish more people were raised that way. Like my parents raised us to be grateful yeah. to others who have served. Sure. And it's, it, one of the, I have a neighbor across the street and we were actually in a whiskey club together and he served in Vietnam. And 10 years ago, when we first met him, he, he, he kind of broke down with telling us about the horrors of the Vietnam War and how he came back to the country. It was spat on. And it, it really hit me because it, it, you always, you watch movies, obviously like born on the 4th of July or these movies jarhead that came back where the media or the filmmaking will portray you don't really, you don't know if it's real or not. But when I hear it from him, I, I go, man, I just thought that was like a newspaper or a headline. He goes, no, we were spat upon baby killers. And getting to know him, I've realized that to carry that weight that he does, but outside of those moments where he breaks down, you would never know he carries that weight. But with you him. know you're helping him by letting him talk right. about it. See, that's exorcising those demons. Uh, I, there, the, the whole thing of baby killers and getting spat on and so on and so forth, there, there's, it happened, but that's cliche. It, it's become hyperbole now. The worst thing that happened, and you ask him, you, as you say, Captain Dye wants to know, you ask him, the worst thing was being ignored. When, if they just didn't have anything to say to you, didn't have any time for you, didn't have any recognition of anything, that to me was always much worse 
than some clown out there, you know, waving a, a blood soaked T-shirt calling me a baby killer. Hey, listen, that's a clown. And I know a clown when I see a clown. It was the indifference, the almost silent contempt. That's something from the Uniform Code of Military Justice that you should recognize, Article 134, silent contempt. That sort of thing, to me, was always uh, worse. It was worse than anything they could do, anything that you know, the commie hippie dope freaks could uh, could get out. Cool. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, silent contempt, the, yep. the ignorance of even recognizing this was the worst thing to me. In terms of going back to kind of Warriors Inc. here before you wrap up, not, you're there, but what, who else is on your team? Are these all veterans themselves? Are these oh, yeah. uh, weapons yeah. experts, arborers, people that – how do you kind of recruit for this? I, I, always, I always blanch at the term expert because I don't know that there's an expert in anything, in particular what we do, uh, because so much of it you just pull it out of your butt. You know, you have to. But um, the, everybody on my team. Uh, with one exception, is, is a veteran uh, of service in, in some capacity. And more importantly, they're all good students. They understand the Captain Die method. Um, they know why I'm doing it, how I'm doing it, and what it's about. Um, so, I mean, my executive officer, for instance, um, and, and I organize my company like a rifle company. There's no CEO. or <laughs> There's a CO and an XO and a first sergeant and so on. But uh, all of those guys are veterans. And my exo, uh, I've known him for over 50 years. He and I were young corporals together in Vietnam. And uh, when I started this and it became workable, um, I drafted him and kicking and screaming, he came in and, uh, and he's adopted it and, and become a terrific teacher himself. And so uh, that's what I look for. I mean, every day I get letters and emails from guys who absolutely have a military resume that it knock your socks off you know that most high speed low drag schools and so on and so forth i'm not looking for them uh that's very nice um but that puts them in a in a little box i want i want that infantry squad leader who can do everything uh, and and more importantly who can teach it who can convey it uh, so those are the guys I look for. Um, and I've, you know, up at one point, I think we had 15 that we could field at any time. Um, we're able to do two movies simultaneously on either side of the world because my guys can handle it. Um, and everybody goes in under the Warriors Incorporated imprimatur. Uh, and that's really what people are buying anyway. So, uh, so yeah, all, all of my guys are solid solid veterans, good teachers, good researchers, smart guys. Does something like the VA have, when you, when someone transitions out of the military, they want to say, do something like Warriors Inc. or maybe the equivalent for artists or painting for movie sets or whatever it is, does the VA, well, how in tune are they with programs like yourselves that can kind of direct people to the director? Well, the, the, the VA uh, is, is pretty fair at pushing people towards something. But they don't have formalized programs for that. Uh, what, what I have done and have helped do in Hollywood is uh, through uh, the International Alliance of uh, Television Stage um, Employees, YATSI, and through the guilds, the Directors Guild, the Writers Guild, the Screen Actors Guild. I try to push those people toward that because most of those have some sort of veteran preference 
um, program where they'll take you, you know, based on your veterans, even if you don't know your butt from your elbow, you know, they'll, they'll take you in there. And if you really want to do it, and more importantly, if you show that work ethic that you brought out of the military, uh, they'll train you and they'll put you, I mean, a classic example is my son. Uh, he's now in special effects, um, awesome. you know, creating blasts and fire and everything. He's a lunatic. And, uh, but that's how he, I got him in there and they, they saw his work ethic and boom, off he went and, uh, and he's doing great with it now. Is it, one of the things I love about, uh, when you, men and women who have served uh, the military that actually are in front of the camera playing actors or whatever, someone like yourself or Adam Driver um, or these other people that have served, you can tell about not only their, their stance and how they present right. themselves, that they've done something. So for someone like yourself or Adam Driver, when you look at an award show and how they hold themselves accountable out of tabloids, no drama, is it tough for you guys to work in, your, in front of the camera now with actors and actresses that are more worried about Star Magazine or, oh, my dog Fifi's sick or my latte's not cold. Like, how hard is it for you guys to kind of separate the, man, if you were in the foxhole with me, I'd slap you. Well, I, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'd, I'd have to ask Adam that very question, but I can't tell you this. Uh, in general, it just pisses us off. Right. You know, here's this Rudy in the rear rank with a rusty rifle who has no idea what the hell he's doing. And he's worried about his latte and, and it's, and I'm trying to communicate here. So, but you quickly recognize those people right. and you kind of, you kind of work around them and neat. The neat part is uh, if you just bring it, bring what you carry in your heart, uh, you upstage the hell out of them anyway. So um, it, 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 it works pretty fair, but, but I got to tell you it, sometimes it's like talking to a, ventriloquist dummy you know i mean where are your eyes where the where's your heart what are you thinking you know so yeah it can get frustrating what was it like now obviously did you have any seeds uh i i'm a huge fan of seagal like take out the drama and some of the tabloid fodder i just love that he perceives himself especially in the film as someone who's very pro military obviously law enforcement How, did you have any seeds with him like what was it like because that's, I think that's the first time you portrayed the same character twice, kind of a carryover role. Yeah. And it's like, would they call you for that? Is that one of those things where it's like, get the band back together? We need you for this stuff. Yeah, it happens. Yeah. Um, look, I didn't, I didn't have anything. I have a lot of scenes with Tommy Lee Jones, who played yes. in the first one. So Tommy's a good friend. Um, but uh, Stephen, you know, I saw him. I'd see him on the sets, and so, and we would talk and that sort of thing. Um, but I didn't actually have any any scenes with him. So I had to kind of in in my mind as an actor, I kind of had to um, imagine and gin up uh, the relationship uh, that we had. And that's, and that's I wondering I because it, it seemed very believable. That's why I was wondering. It's like it's almost like you do. Obviously, you've lived that life talking dialogue, how to use comms. But for him, obviously, he's acting. But it just seems super believable. Like I almost pictured you two in the same room see you across each other because you built that really cool rapport. Yeah. And, and I think, I think that really uh, much to Steven's uh, credit, you know, he talked to me about a lot of things, military and uh, would listen very carefully. And I think, I think part of his believability was that he picked up on those things. You know, would, would this happen? Would that happen? How would I think about this? How would I think about that? And I would provide an answer for him. So I think that was helpful to him. 
And for me, look, you know, how many times your best corporal has just screwed the pooch somewhere and the CO wants to know who is this guy and should I court martial him or can I let him off with an article 15 or I was, that's what I was doing. I was protecting my best corporal out there and I've done that a hundred times. And, and so that's kind of the mindset I was in with Steven in, in under siege. Be, uh, before I let you go here, Captain, like what kind of projects you got working on? I know the industry is opening back up again after the last couple of years, but I don't know if you could talk about any projects, but obviously it's still exciting for you. Anything cool coming down the pipeline? Well, I've moved to Texas, uh, uh, South Central Texas, uh, just to get out of the L.A. rat race, frankly. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I'm coming up I'm coming up on uh, 78 years old. So and I still run and lift weights and all that sort of thing. But it's getting harder and harder on me. I'm getting old and ugly. And I'm, I'm thinking that, um, you know, I'm going to reduce how much I do. Um, I we I just finished nine months in the U.K., uh, on a project. I can't tell you a lot about it. I'm under an NDA, but, yep. um, but if you saw band of brothers and you saw the Pacific, awesome. there is, there is a third one and that'll be out probably in a year or so because it was so complicated to do, but, uh, that one's another world war II project. And, uh, and I think, uh, anybody who's an aviator might really, uh, enjoy awesome. that. Um, and you know, I still get calls and they still want me to work on this and they still want me to work on that, but I'm, I'm being really choosy and picky now. I'm saying, uh, you know, I've done that story, um, a hundred times and, or I'll, I'll turn them on to somebody who can help them out. But, um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very picky about the directors and the stories that I do now, because frankly, um, and I don't want us to sound uh, conceited, but but I've pretty well done it, you know, yes. <laughs> unless it's <laughs> unless it's something I haven't done, something that just tickles the hell out of me. And then uh, then I'll probably pick up on it. But I'm, I'm reducing my profile. If there was a a, 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 t- a different time or a specific war you would you could have served in outside of your era that you, you did. Is which war would that be? Or like, is there is like the Punic War, Sparta? Like, what's out there that you wish you could have seen how military tactics and leadership would have evolved? I, that? I'll tell you, um, it it probably would be Korea. Oh wow! I think uh, I've just written a book. By the way, I write novels, and there's about thirteen of them out there. If you want to look them up, Let's see if I've got a copy of one here. Yeah. And now, the plug. Love this it. is this is my new book uh, called Korean Odyssey, and it's a story of a marine rifle company in uh, in Korea. And I've always thought, I mean, the guys who trained me um, were mostly Korea veterans, and I, I they picked up they gave me so much that really ended up saving my life uh, when I got my crucible in Vietnam. That I I always thought they were underserved. You know, nobody really understood the Korean War, and nobody really gave it a damn. And uh, and and I have talked to so many uh, Korea veterans who I think I think there's a light that needs to be sh- shown on them, and and I would like to do that. Awesome. Well, uh, Captain Dye, this has been amazing. Um, thank you for being the reason why we can actually do this type of thing this day and age. <laughs> and uh, I wish you all the success and uh, continued. Uh, creatively creatively outlets and all your stuff your leadership everything going on so thank you again
You're welcome, John. And, and the neat thing, uh, the reason I like to do these is because when I talk to another veteran, I can shorthand a lot of stuff and you get it. And that's why that's the points to your success. Well done. Thank you. Thank you, sir. How's it going, everyone? John here, the host of Spear Talk. You might not know this, but before I record an episode, I like to break a sweat. And I do that using the chop fit. Over the course of the past year, the chop fit has allowed me to lose weight, tone up my body, and feel even more amazing about myself. A feeling that you should all feel about yourself as well. If you use this code, SPEARCHOP10, you get $10 off your order. Once again, use code SPEARCHOP10 for $10 off your chop fit order. It'll change your life. Thank you. What happens when we play outside? We become healthier, both mentally and physically. We become more creative and more focused. We connect with nature, each other, and ourselves. Let's Take This Outside, a new podcast hosted by me, Marianne Iveson, an aspiring outdoor athlete and nature lover. I speak to athletes, outdoor professionals, and scientists about their connection to nature, how it affects their performance and everyday life. Let's Take This Outside, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and at letstakethisoutside.ca. I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent, almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com.